Hi, I'm Brian Fichtorn, president of Genesius Theatre, located at 10th and Walnut Streets in beautiful downtown Reading, PA. This is the Genesius Difference Podcast, brought to you by the Backroom Network. Please visit us at geniciusdifference.org to find out about our season and how to get tickets. I hope you enjoy the podcast and we'll see you at the theater. Now it's time for Ask a Genesius All-Star, where you, the listeners, get to ask questions of Genesius alumni who made it to the big time. Question one, what was your first experience with Genesius? I don't remember the first Genesius production that I saw as a kid, but the first one that I did as both a music director and an actor was the Who's Tommy that Larry Fetcher directed in the summer of 2006. I followed up that show with two others in close succession, first year in town that fall and Jesus Christ Superstar the following spring. Question two. Since you've played for so many auditions, what do you feel separates a good audition from a memorable audition? That's a great question. As I tell a lot of people, it's really humbling being on the other side of the casting table because you realize that almost everyone who goes through that door is wildly talented. It rarely comes down to the person who is best, whatever that means. It's more, you know, who was the appropriate fit for that character or the director's vision. With that said, the truly great auditions separate themselves by being not only solid in the singing and the acting, but the thought that goes behind it. And that doesn't mean that you have to create a new song or routine for every audition that you have, but just taking a slightly different take on it or thinking about your go-to song in a different way. It lets the creative team know that you really are invested in the show that you're going out for and that you're a thinking actor. It makes a difference. Question three. How old were you when you started musical training? And what was the most important training for what you do now? I started taking piano lessons when I was four years old. I started with community theater when I was six years old. And as far as where I am today, I would say the most valuable part of my training was just kind of jumping in and doing it all. Uh, You don't have a lot of time to prepare for music direction and being in a new show. A lot of times uh, you're doing a workshop that doesn't have a lot of rehearsal time or you're given a new song last minute. Um, So I would say sight reading, playing auditions, uh, and kind of the the long-term work has been most helpful for me. For people at Genesius who do mostly established works, I would say uh, become a student of the theater. Watch as much theater as you can, listen to cast albums, read books, read memoirs and autobiographies and biographies, and then when you approach something that's new to you, it doesn't have to be as new, or you at least have a better frame of reference to approach the material with authority and thought and uh, professionalism. Four, what is your dream role? I don't do a lot of performing anymore, but I do have a couple dream roles. I would love to play the Billy Joel character in Moving Out, but it's never produced. I would love to play Chuck Baxter in Promises, Promises. I didn't know the show until Genesius did it. I think I was in high school or college, and my dad played uh, uh, Dr. Dreyfus. And I would love to play Seymour Krelborn in Little Shop of Horrors. I've always had a soft spot for that character. Number five. 
What was your immediate reaction when you learned you had booked your first show on Broadway? Oh, I was in awe for a long time. And I didn't want to say it out loud in case something happened. Uh, you know, you always hear about shows like Rebecca or Nerds getting funding pulled or, you know, other things happen. But uh, I remember when I finally started, I think I was even in previews, uh, and we were approaching opening night. I had a big post on Facebook about it and the response and the generosity from both my friends and colleagues and family was just unbelievable. And uh, the first night I found out that I was conducting the show because usually I was the second keyboard. That was just an amazing experience. And, you know, the little slider that goes outside uh, that says this performance will be conducted by. Um, they gave it to me after the show once it closed. So it's still on my fridge. Number six, how did working at Genesius prepare you for what you're doing now? I would say becoming a real active member of the creative and design team. Um, before the Who's Tommy in 2006, I had been in a lot of shows, I had accompanied shows, but I hadn't really music directed in earnest, and that meant never really um, becoming involved with a production meeting. So I remember distinctly, before we started Tommy, we had a meeting in the back office at Genesius, and everyone involved uh, from the choreographer to the different lighting and projection designers, uh, and obviously Larry, who was directing, was reading over Larry's annotated script with his new concepts and different uh, design ideas he had at various points in the show, many of which had musical implications. So becoming an active member of that discussion was new for me, and I really have to credit Larry and Genesius for um, raising the bar and raising my literacy as a music director. The other part of the answer is obviously connecting me with Genesius founder Michael O'Flaherty. Uh, for three years after college, I was on staff at the Goodspeed Opera House. It has totally changed my career. I really owe Larry and I owe Michael uh, pretty much everything. Hey everybody, this is Chris Spratt here with my first Chris A List. I'm going to be talking about uh, oh some um, wonderful moments in musical theater that have been preserved on cast albums throughout the last 100 plus years of Broadway. And for today's installment, I want to talk about um, what is called the 11 o'clock number. And the funny thing about the 11 o'clock number is that most of us are, are in our cars or on the way to the bar in the parking garage or wherever at 11 o'clock at this point at, from, our, from our 7 o'clock, 7.30, 8 o'clock shows on Broadway currently. But back in the day, uh, Broadway shows used to begin at 8.40 p.m. So we, uh, by the time the climactic number, if you will, would occur, we were pushing 11 o'clock. And of course, like I said, the 11 o'clock number is the the ultimate uh, emotional catharsis, the big release in in a musical, um, the climax, if you will, which then, you know, gives way to the denouement of the show. And I just want to talk about a few that are standouts in the musical theater canon in no particular order. But I will start with the mother of all mothers, the mother of all stage mothers, Mama Rose in Gypsy. She is given quite possibly the finest 11 o'clock number in musical theater history with Rose's turn, which was conceived by uh, Julie Stein and Stephen Sondheim in the final stages of creating Gypsy. They didn't have any way to end the show. So they decided to take snippets of other songs in the show, some people and, and, 
other pieces of songs, everything's coming up roses and the, some of the stripper riffs and, and the rest is history. Um, so like I said, they were taking snippets of, of other songs they had used in, throughout the evening and voila, there it was. One of the greatest show closers in history to have been done by Ethel Merman and uh, Tyne Daly, Tony winner, Angela Lansbury, Tony Award winner, Bernadette Peters, Tony nominee, Patti LuPone, Tony Award winner for Gypsy. Had the privilege of seeing them all in, in addition to many other ladies, Tova Feld, Shalini Kazan, put their own stamp on the role. Another one that is an amazing 11 o'clock number is one that I actually got to perform myself. It's from the 2015 Best Musical Fun Home. It is called The Edges of the World. My character, Bruce Bechtel, is about to, the way I interpreted it was he was about to commit suicide. Uh, the the um, strain of, of living a, a double life as, a, as a, a family man, an educator, professional businessman, and also a closeted homosexual with a penchant for younger partners, it all comes to a head in, in uh, this, this number that was a, an extremely cathartic release for me every night. The entire um, hour and 40 minutes just came to, came to this pinnacle. Um, and then I was threw myself in front of a truck. I believe it was a Sunbeam bread truck. A little bit of backstory there. Uh, another uh, fantastic 11 o'clock number is by my favorite composer, Don't Hate, Don't Hate, Haters Gonna Hate, Andrew Lloyd Webber, um, from his musical Cats. Grizabella the Glamour Cat is given probably one of the most precious and treasured ballads, particularly for belters on Broadway, in the song Memory. Memory is, I'm sorry, Cats is essentially a, a, a dance musical, a concept musical, but uh, at this point in the evening, as Grizabella is chosen to go to the heaviside lair and, and come back to Earth as a, different, as a different cat, a different jellical life, she basically gets to stand and sing and deliver this extremely powerful ballad. She gets to slam it across the footlights. And um, I believe it was the opening night of Cats when Betty Buckley uh, was about to go out and they realized her mic did not work. And Trevor Nunn was like, Betty, you got this. You can belt it. Just go out and sing. And fast forward to her Tony Award for Cats. Uh, one of my most favorite 11 o'clock numbers is, of course, the the song Cabaret from the musical version of the mus- of Cabaret. Uh, the stage version, I should say, not uh, not to be confused with the the extremely edited and annotated and 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 uh, rewritten film version. No disrespect to Liza Minnelli, who did a fantastic Oscar-winning job, but for me, nothing will top the memory of seeing the late, great Natasha Richardson shortly after she won her Tony Award delivering the song Cabaret in the 1998 revival, which also featured Alan Cumming in his Tony-winning performance. To see Natasha's Sally Bowles Spoiler alert, she had just sold her fur coat to have an abortion. She was severely addicted to narcotics. She was coming through a withdrawal from her alcoholism to see Natasha Richardson, to see Sally Bowles, I should say, because Natasha became Sally Bowles, to see that woman's emotional and to a lesser extent, physical breakdown was one of the most 
shattering things I have ever seen on a Broadway stage. And uh, to lose her at such a at such a young age uh, is is the world, and particularly the, the theater world's great great loss. She is is truly missed. The last one I want to talk about is from a show called Caroline or Change. Now, Caroline or Change did not run very long on Broadway. It ran a little more than 100 performances. I remember seeing the production on a Wednesday evening in a theater that was probably mm, maybe a third full. And while I didn't particularly care for the show itself, Caroline or Change, there was no denying the star power and the presence of Tanya Pinkins in her Tony-nominated performance as Caroline. She has a number late in the second act called Lot's Wife that might be the equivalent of a Shakespearean monologue. And uh, Tanya Pinkins famously, or infamously, if you will, had severe vocal trouble during that show. So when you have a woman there not only struggling with what her character is going through, but struggling through a ravaged voice, just giving 110% in for a, a two-thirds empty house on a Wednesday evening was just mind-blowing. Again, while I'm not a fan of the show, to have witnessed that performance is certainly something that is etched in my memory forever. Well, thank you for listening to The Chrysalist, my segment of the Genesius Difference podcast. If anything struck your fancy or you want more information, please go through the show notes where you will find links to Amazon.com, where we will have links to cast albums and recordings of the shows I talked about today. This is Chris Spratt. Thank you for listening to The Chrysalist, and I hope to see you at the theater. Thanks for listening to the Genesius Difference Podcast, brought to you by the Backroom Network. Follow the Genesius Difference Podcast on Facebook and be sure to visit geniusdifference.org. Also, check out the Backroom Network at backroomnetwork.com.